that's not it at all. The whole Rockstar mythos is a lie. It'll lead you nowhere. It's like when you believe in the Easter Bunny or the Sasquatch. No. You mean Sasquatch isn't real? Look. Look at me. I'm your future. Let the dream die. Let the dream die. Welcome back to another episode of Money for Nothing. I'm Saxon Baird with Sam Backer as always. Today we got an interview between Sam and David Arditi, who is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Texas at Arlington. He wrote a book that came out last year called Record Contracts, Musicians and Power in Society, which dives into and examines how the ideology of getting signed remains pervasive and has long motivated aspiring musicians to sign what are often unfavorable contracts often, and obs- often, often often unfavorable <laughs> yeah <laughs> and obscure the reality of record contracts themselves uh, obviously this is a very money for nothing topic that we've discussed if not directly then uh, in part but uh before we dive into the interview sam why don't you start by just talking a bit about some of the aspects of our diddy's book and uh why they really interest you I was really interested in this book because obviously we've we've talked a lot about like record contracts and how they're used by labels for any number of things, um, controlling artists' careers as a way to do kind of uh, leveraged buyouts of potential uh, potentially very valuable IP at bargain basement prices at the way they're constructed, intricately crafted to um, really stack the deck against the artists making a, a lot of money while making the labels <laughs> a lot of money but so that this book and this interview goes into all of that but what really what's different about it is the way it views these record contracts as an ideology as more than just the contracts themselves as kind of like the 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 tip of the spear of a broader way of thinking about society and the broader way of the, the way the music industry structures the way we think about music and art and culture and society and that a lot of those broader ideas are wrapped up in this what he calls the ideology of getting signed right not just the reality of the record contracts but the ways that people think about them as kind of the thing that you do as a musician that getting signed means that you've made it and that means that you're a successful musician yeah, and I like that, um, and like I think that it speaks to like structures of power and who benefits and how they are reinforced and relationships and relationships within the various networks involved within those structures of power, you know, either directly or otherwise, and the tools in which are used to maintain that power. And I think that uh, one of the things that Arditi writes about and you two discuss in the forthcoming interview is like the concept of uh, like hegemonic power in the music industry. And of course, one of the really simple things that he says, not to like, you know, jump the gun on the interview, which is really great in of itself. But one of the things he says is that uh, something about like the only way the record companies are able to exploit artists is through the record contract itself. And it's such like a simple statement, but I found it like so interesting because really it's just like this one thing that locks you into a contract that then allows for all these other things to happen and essentially like reinforce the power of these record companies. And I guess that's all part of this ideology in which you, you two are, which, which Arditi writes about and which you two speak about. Yeah. And I think the idea of hegemony is really important there. 
and and the way that that the RD uses hegemony throughout the book is this idea that like it's not just that the record companies are like the boot eternally pushing on the face of the artists even though in many cases that's not inaccurate it's that the way this whole system functions is is that it only functions if it has buy-in from the whole structure from society as a whole that the idea of record labels being part of a hegemonic power structure is that artists willingly engage and artists and the communities that support them and the broader social imaginary that envisions like what an artistic career is and what it looks like all supports this idea of the record contract as the steel the seal of of legitimacy really of the point at which maybe one way you can say it is the point at which private activity right like or community activity the making of music for a specific group of people enters into kind of industry mediated public activity that this is now going to be a commodity for sale and that the ability to to go from like community to like the broader public is encapsulated in the record contract so if i'm understanding correctly you're saying that the pathway from the bedroom or the garage to the public is often viewed as paved through the record contract. Yeah, exactly. And, and that, that's what RDD argues, right? That, that, that is not, as we know, the only way to go from the bedroom to the broader public. But that, or, right. and, and it's not clear that signing a record contract actually gets you very much further out of your bedroom. And in fact, for the- Sure, sure, right. Yeah, might, yeah, yeah. Might for, put for you the back in the bedroom. For the vast majority of people who get record contracts, the results are not fame and fortune. Right, right, right. right full right. stop. So, right. but the, the question is so, okay, if that's true, which everyone kind of knows, and there are other ways potentially, especially now with the internet, to go around these labels um, or to find other ways to, to, to connect with a broader public. Why do people keep signing contracts? And and one answer is the labels offer a suite of business connections and promotional possibilities that are, are, are not possible to recapture any other way. The other is that there has been, over the past century and change, this ideology that, like like we're saying, like that that this has has a, has a symbolic meaning in addition to its business meaning. That everyone's seen almost famous. That everyone's seen a million, you know, not exactly a star is born, but like a million, uh, a million movies or like been a battle of bands where there's a whole kind of, there's a narrative and a myth. There's a narrative and a myth and a cultural, he argues a cultural apparatus, you know, designed to make it seem that this is the way to gain legitimacy on what is usually considered in our society, a relatively non-productive activity. Like, you know, that get serious, stop playing in your band, that this is a different... Yeah, like, go get a real job, quote Go unquote. get a real job. Or, you know, the, again, the split between, I think, at a, at a deeper level, if we think about, like, the labor market and the home as these, like, two struct, a, a structure, structuring binary opposition in the way that people, you know, that's the mid to 20th century opposition in the way that American lives were structured, that the time when you move from 
spending a lot of time doing something that's non-job related to something that makes music a job and the meaning that adheres to making music a job. Well, we run a podcast that makes no money. Should we should we get a record contract and or should we go get a real job? Just kidding. I'm like, yeah, exploit us, exploit <laughs> us, please. <laughs> yeah, willingly be w- willingly open to being exploited. No, uh, but to get serious for us, to get to get serious again. Yeah, to get serious, we have our morals, and we will not take <laughs> your money, your filthy Luke. It depends how Listen, much, really. <laughs> this anarchy tattoo on my ass does not rub off. <laughs> Well, first of all, my first thought is like, you know, the things you're talking about obviously are interconnected with something that's greater and be something that's beyond the record industry. You know, this sort of like built into the American dream, pull yourself up, pull yourself up from your bootstraps idea ideology. You know that like if you work hard work, you know, hard work will always equate with like success, et cetera. But, you know, as we know, for like every Taylor Swift, there's. 100,000 wannabe Taylor Swifts that never were able to make it or are like locked in like contract hell. <laughs> um, but I guess my question is, just to play the devil's advocate, it's not like these contracts don't do anything. Like you do maybe get access to a studio or like industry connections. You do get an advance, which of course you have to pay back or in the form of, you know, record sales and everything, which we've talked about before. So I guess, you know, so I guess my question like, you know, one one is like, it's not completely based in like a total fantasy. And second of all, like, you know, even if it is exploit exploitative, you know, to be proactive here, what is the alternative? Like, for example, you know, as we're about to hear, you two engage in a discussion around the rise of Little Nas X. And while I won't go too far into it, the question arises if Little Nas X really needed to sign a record contract, considering he already had a sizable following um, on social media before Old Town Road really shot him to stardom. So, okay, he could have made his money and continued to rise as a star without a record contract. In theory, yes, but it's, you know, it's not really DIY, right? Because, like, he still has to, you know, use privately owned social media platforms that are maybe soft exploiting him. So, like, what, you know, what are some of the alternatives, you know? And, like, can we at least give some credit that maybe these record contracts do something or like what do you yeah, think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a really, that's a really interesting question. And so, it kind of has two, 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 uh, two angles on it, right? So, for, I think that, that one of the things that, that's tricky about popular music in the, 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 the tricky about thinking about popular music, the way we try to think about popular music, right? Which is one in which music is co-created by a series, really by a negotiation. Um, I, it, I think simplified as a triangle, it's more than that, right? Fans, artists, labels, and all three of those together make what music is. In, an Amer- in the United States, and that there really is, for most of the music that we listen to, like, there's no before that, right? Yeah. Like, the grand- great-great-grandparents of the music that we listen to were already in a record label system in which economic concerns by these labels fundamentally structured how music operated. Even just think about, like, the move to a verse and chorus of equivalent lengths. Sure. <laughs> That's so that people can remember the chorus and buy the sheet music. I spent like my morning <laughs> reading newspaper accounts of people failing to remember sheet music choruses in <laughs> sheet music counters in department stores in Chicago <laughs> in the in the nineteen. Wow. 
so hot off, hot off the presses. It's the equiv- It's the. It's like it's like the. It's like the proto of like pulling out your Shazam and being like, "What song is this?" And then like clicking Shazam and be like, "Oh yeah, that." You can see them like humming at the counters, like the like the 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 verses and the chorus. Yeah, yeah. They're like everyone's like you know the song that goes like tra la 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 la, and the the people are like, "No, <laughs> no, we don't." So so. Given all that, right, that industry infrastructure that shapes what popular music is, I think that another reason, another thing that these contracts do, in addition to sometimes giving artists certain kinds of resources and certain kinds of promotional activities, often locking them into extremely exploitative contracts that uh, break their momentum, (laughs) shelve their records, destroy their careers, is, is that at some level it whether or not it's ideological, and I think it clearly is, right? If part of making pop music is being in relationship to the music industry, because that's been true for the past century, it's hard to make meaningful pop music outside of that system. It's like, you know, there's a certain kind of sadness of people like, and that's this, and I speak as someone who's done this, of people with no label support, no industry legitimacy, like releasing albums. Because it feels like you're play acting you're play acting music business. You're pretending to do music business without any music business. And I do think that there's certain kinds of aesthetically meaningful moves that you need to be in relationship to these systems of cultural and economic power in order to have those moves be anything more than play acting. Or to give a little bit credit to the punk uh, scene, maybe not play acting, but at least it's not like, servicing a like a very niche community of like you know your friends and like their friends basically which is okay too and i have no problem with yeah but like yeah i i I see that a lot where it's kind of the reaction to this you know the things we're talking about this the ideology of the contracts and like big labels i think is oftentimes sometimes like okay well we'll just like create like a small community of like our friends and like you know, you know, their friends across the country and just play like basement shows or small shows and be completely okay with that, which I'm like fine with as well. Unfortunately, it's not like economically sustainable, which speaks to like a a bunch of other issues. But the point being is that it's kind of almost like oftentimes the reaction is just either, you know, to go like insular. And, but I think what's interesting and what's inherent in your point is that it kind of goes back to my little Nas X point, which is like, in some way, even if you don't sign a record contract, you're still kind of playing into this sort of hegemonic power you kind of have to play the game to a certain extent right because as i was saying about like you know okay yeah sure like little Nas x didn't have to sign a record contract supposedly right and he maybe could have made his his money without it but how it's not fully diy it's still through like you know these exploitative like social media platforms which you know use its most popular and creative users to get things like, you know, ad revenue or, you know, there's also issues around IP. Like, you know, that's that's something that continues to be a bit of a discussion on Instagram, which can like sub license your content, meaning that it could like license a user's photograph or like video to any third party for free without seeking permission from you, given any like, you know, and not giving any like notice or even like payments. You could like literally be like walking down the street and see your photo like on a billboard and like cool (laughs) and like no credit or anything. You know, and then of course there's also the issue that we talked about last episode, which is just like the ephemeral nature of building an empire on a cloud-based, privately owned platform, which could poof be gone at any moment. R.I.P. Vine. It, it, it's it's kind of this this strange where thing where I think it's always good to examine the structures of power and really kind of question them and look for alternatives. But in a way, you you kind of have to play the game unless maybe 
going back to our Fugazi episode, unless kind of like it's a perfect storm where everything kind of like falls into place. I mean, is that like a really like cynical like kind of view of things, or do you know? I mean, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? No, I think in a lot of ways that's that's exactly that's exactly right, and I, I really agree with that. And I think that you outlined there like a bunch of the the certainly always people are kind of living in the shadow of commodified popular music, even if you're pushing against it. I it, with very few exceptions, and I do think that you kind of outlined a couple of different ways to 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 maybe change the system. Or uh, rethink this ideology. Certainly, like I, I think you're, you're exactly right. The point about punk scenes, about local scenes, also about like say dance, dance music, sure. where there's like a lot of remixes, a lot of uncleared stuff, where the goal is to have a, a song that hits in the room, and that's the primary economic transaction is like bringing people into a room to dance, and that maybe some of it's released on white labels, maybe a lot of a lot of it isn't, and it's a different form of music making. And I do think that those kind of like that approach that really focuses on the relationship between music and the community of listeners and fans in in, in like kind of a, a social a socialized way is like one way around this ideology of being signed. And I would argue that that music is in many ways doing something kind of different. Our Didi's argument is that like musicians should embrace their identity as workers, which is interesting, right? Like be, you know, say say instead of having ip instead of you know saying i want to be the one in a million who's going to make it is that we should they should all say yeah i'll work for you pay me 60k plus benefits and i'll work for you and you can have anything i make and i'll do what you want and and kind of like undo this romantic ethos and and we'll uh, we'll get more into that in, in, in the interview but undo this romantic ethos of like the individual creator against the world yeah, yeah, and I think I think in that sense it kind of becomes like almost like maybe you're really hitting on the sort of the, the kernel of the issue where I think it you know it's more about not whether these contracts and like say being on Universal or one of its labels can like help an artist, but more about how these contracts ultimately favor the labels, providing them with a larger share of the profits and the art that that's built off like what the artists create, you know, sort of surplus value, which like the artists don't gain any value from. You know, I think that's kind of like, or like, don't the artists don't gain any like monetary uh, reward from the contracts? Just continue to favor like the, ma- the the major labels. And I think like, furthermore, I think it's really interesting is that like the reason or logic behind these like contracts, which you two touch on a little bit, is structured and how it's structured is becoming more and more opaque, right? Like, because at least uh, with you know, in the age of streaming, like you know. Like before the age of streaming, they had an excuse. You used to have a lug, lug a lot of records yeah, around yeah. different Yo, places. We gotta like, like send stuff out. Record, yeah. yeah, we gotta like send stuff we out. We gotta this. press this stuff. There's like that's cost and time. But now it's like about marketing and not much else. It's hard to say. So like you know, despite these format changes, the contracts have become continued to become, I think, probably even more favorable for the the labels and the, the yeah. The, Though the the one thing I think that the, the Little Nas X example also kind of brings up, I think one of the major problems with this, like musicians as as a worker, and 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 the reasons why I think that, that probably is unlikely, is that I would call it like the, almost like the music industrialization of all life, <laughs> in that yeah, in that they would you know think about a label now they'd just be like no we're gonna just buy teenagers <laughs> productions using garage band and put them out there and they won't sound as good but people will still buy it because 
at some level, you could say that there's now that if music is created by this relationship between like industry performers and fans, if the technology shifts such that it used to be some live performances and this fairly discrete form of content, which is recorded music. And now with digital technology, that it's this much, the much more ambiguous, much more boundary crossing affair, right? Like where you're, it's about the, the content they're giving you is like snappy tweets and also semi-candid, semi-non-candid videos and music videos and epic clapbacks and a bunch of songs, right? What the the aesthetic, the cultural value of that performer is spread across more mediums and like I think you were referencing is also being mediated by these platforms and that also kind of breaks down a lot of the lines between who's a performer, who's not a performer, who's in the industry, who's not in the industry, which industry who's is. Who's a worker, who's a business. Who's a worker, who's a business, what is everyday social life? And I would argue that like what we're seeing now is music fundamentally shifting. The meaning of, you know, what was once the space occupied by music is increasingly occupied by this different arrangement of social, uh, cultural expressions. And that then that also, unfortunately, also given the fact that there's an easier crossover between kind of like the guild structure of performers and amateurs in some ways, like you're going to get like, I don't know, like more evenly distributed exploitation or <laughs> like, you know, we, you can kind of fill in, fill in the blanks, right. That, that in social media, they're not going to give anyone contracts. And there is this very dark side of this that like, yeah, contracts were exploitative, but at least they came with advances and yeah, blowing up. Yeah. Like TikTok, TikTok's not giving you any like money for like well, creator I mean, funds maybe a little, a little bit, bit now, now yeah. but like, yeah, a little bit now, but like not giving you for like 1 billion, like, you know, views or whatever, you know, you didn't get it in advance to like, buy the lights and do the whatever you did you know to make that and the flip know, side so. though just as one final point i think before we, we we head to the interview is is like at the same time it also blends that line between the community and non-community performance and art right that it's possible to have tools to disseminate cultural meaning and maybe someone far off away from you is making money off your interactions and maybe every once in a while someone bubbles up but that there's a possibility for a lot more communities of people making art and culture for communities of people which in its own way is undoing a certain kind of of that uh, hegemony of being signed like what does it mean in the future if in 35 years right if there's still a world right in 35 years if you have a generation of parents of 50 year olds a quarter of whom had one viral thing once right like not a big viral thing i had a thing that hit 10k that changes the way you think about like the industry it changes the way you think about like who's a performer and who's not a performer because they they had that experience for a moment yeah yeah the the you know andy warhol's like whole like 15 minutes of fame is like really kind of uh transformed now in, in, a, in a strange way and like what it means is like obviously changed with uh, format changes but i you know going back to this community thing i think it's really interesting and also i'll you know and i'll just make one last point as well in that like you know even the word itself has really been kind of co-opted by these platforms social media platforms and these businesses 
and you have to kind of really think about like how much of it is a community if i you know this like if i'm on this platform with these other people maybe we're doing a similar style of music or expression creative expression whatever it may be but i've never really actually ever met them they live across across the world and like i'm not being really able i'm not able to really like tap into the resources or collaborate i mean in some senses i guess you can but you know if you think about i hate to keep bringing it up but if you think about like Fugazi like you know that was like a real community of people with resources and like all like coming together to like help each other out right and I think that to continue with that though and not to play the devil's advocate but to look on the other side of it that is an example of some real DIY shit but it's also pretty much a fucking business and it was run like a business right and so like yeah the lines there were like maybe blurring a little bit between these definitions of DIY and business. But I mean, now they're, they're completely blurred. Like I, you know, I, I think that, you know, if you wanted to go ahead and not sign one of these record contracts, I could fully support you. But unfortunately, like we're not completely operating outside of any system. And in some ways we're actually even contributing to like certain structures of power, including like the ideology of the individual, which is kind of feeding into all of this and the pervasiveness of that, that like to ask for help or to do it, as a community in a sense somehow diminishes like your own individual talents so i don't know a lot to think about but uh we'll probably uh we'll, we'll tie a bow on our conversation there stay tuned for sam's great conversation with david arditi uh who wrote the book record contracts musicians and power in society enjoy This episode is David Arditi, who uh, just recently published um, Getting Signed, Record Contracts, Musicians, and Power in Society. Um, that's out now on uh, Springer International Publishing. <laughs> we re- I really, really like this book. It was like, I saw the title and I was like, oh, that's a, <laughs> that's a money for nothing style book <laughs> right there. <laughs> so so uh, welcome to Money for Nothing. And yeah, I guess just to get started, I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what is the ideology of getting signed? Well, thank you for having me, Sam. And the ideology of getting signed started for me back as a gigging musician. I played drums in various bands for about a decade, uh, actively playing bars and clubs. 
And one thing that I always ran into, whether it was musicians or people, other people that had expectations of musicians, was that the ultimate goal of being a musician should be signing a, a major record label record contract. And that never really squared well with me because when people sign a record contract, it's actually the most exploitative thing that they can do. A record contract never or rarely uh, results in anything, whether that's um, fame, wealth, stability, record contracts do the exact opposite. So the ideology of getting signed uh, is specifically that idea that the thing that we do is pursue a record contract to make it. What's, what's amazing about this this book is that it, it starts off with, with that, which is like a, you know, at, at this point, not quite a truism, but like everyone knows, like you know, the 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 record industry doesn't exactly have like a great rap <laughs> in terms of not being an exploitative place. But what what you do is you chart in in a lot of ways that um I just I'd never put together before the ways in which that kind of simple ideological proposition structures a whole host of other dynamics throughout the industry. And, and throughout society, really. Right. So one of the amazing things is that, uh, as I mentioned, not only do musicians have that desire, but that people outside of music have that same desire. And we see it built in all these different places. And for me, the ideology of getting signed is the same ideology as the American dream. But it's the kind that will lead us to um, celebrity and great wealth. And when people have that ideology, they think that this is going to solve all their problems, but it's really the thing that's going to perpetuate and create problems. So I guess one of the things when you say it perpetuates it and creates problems, like at the most basic level, we're talking about the ways in which Signing a standard record contract for a position of little or no leverage as an artist, I mean, this is something we've covered a lot on the show, locks you into an exploitative relationship where even if you make the record company a good chunk of money, you're ultimately seeing very little or none of that while signing away kind of the the, the bulk of your... Um, the intellectual property that you have created as part of that system. But in addition, it's also that kind of the, the basic idea. So it, it hurts you on, on, on at, the, at the basic level, I guess. But then it also, right. the basic supposition that getting signed is what is, is the right way to, to, to go about running a music business structures kind of, how people think about music in a pretty fundamental way. Absolutely. So, so maybe maybe to dive in a little bit a little bit further. Like, so what does this get the labels, the, the 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 culture industry system? Like, what does it get them at the kind of individual level? And then, I guess maybe also, what does it get them at the the broader ideological level? Like. Um, what is this? What what kind of realities is, is it hiding? 
Well, I think that the most important thing is that record labels can't exploit musicians without record contracts. Uh, if you think about the kind of costs that go into producing music, especially in the 21st century, there's not a lot of costs to it. Musicians themselves own their instruments generally. And so therefore they can play music without much cost going into it. And that has always been the case. And record labels as a result have a very difficult time getting musicians to act like labor. So what I argue that they've done, and I call this um, enclosure, this is similar to land enclosure in England, is they created copyright or at least deployed copyright in a way that makes it something tradable. And as soon as copyright became tradable, then musicians could exchange that copyright for an advance. And the advance is the, the hook that puts musicians uh, in that point of exploitation. So for your audience, I'm sure you've talked about this before. If someone gets a $500,000 advance, that $500,000 goes to recording an album and promoting that album. The label expects the musicians to pay back that advance on their portion of the sales. So in, in kind of simple terms, it was, it was a lot easier to think about these things in, in the 1990s with CDs. But a CD sells for, say, $15. $5 comes off of that, off the top for retail. So out of that other $10, that's what's coming back to the label. And musicians generally get 10 to 15% royalties. So 10% of $10 is a dollar. So for every sale of an album, they get a dollar, except they don't get that dollar. The label gets that dollar until they've paid off that $500,000 advance. So if it's a dollar per CD, then they have to sell 500,000 CDs. And conveniently, 500,000 CDs is a gold album. And very few artists actually sell a gold album. Meanwhile, the record label gets about the same in royalties per sale. So they're let's just say they're getting 10%. They then break even at 250000 because it's their 250000 plus uh, the recording artist 250,000. You add that up, you get the 500,000. So between 250,000 and 500,000 copies of a CD sold, the record label will net not only their 250,000, but they're also still getting the 250,000 from the artist. So that's $500,000 in their pocket. So that's the basic system of exploitation that's happening. And most recording artists don't see a way to pay off that money or to not to pay off that money, but to put their music out there without that advance. And and just to, to, to add the icing onto the cake, there's also the fact that after they pay off the advance, it's not like they then... It's not a mortgage, right? They don't then own the recordings most of the time. The label still owns the masters. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And they're still stuck in those record contracts, usually for uh, a set number of albums, let's say five albums. 
So until they produce those five albums, they're stuck with that record label. And it, if let's say they don't recoup the $500,000 and the label decides, okay, but we'll, we'll do the next album anyway. Well, they'll take whatever they still owe the label and add that to the next advance. So next time, if they still owe the label $250,000, they get another $500,000. Well, now they owe the label $750,000. So it's this perpetual money-making machine for the label while it's a perpetual exploitation machine for the recording artist. So I wanted to go back into what how you started that and and, um, and, and dig in a little bit deeper. So you, you said that the 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 kind of enclosure of copyrights, which is a really fascinating idea because in, in many ways, uh, of, oftentimes musicians think about copyrights as a positive, right? That I now have property that I am creating and then I have, you know, there's the sanctity of property, right? I, this is my property. I created it. I control it. And you kind of really flipped my understanding of this on its head and you could have said that no in fact the reason that copyright exists with music the way it does is specifically so that things could be alienated so that you could sell the rights to this stuff um, you know the rights to songs to compositions to this broader industry and that's actually they the, the point of their existence in the modern legal system is for the purpose of their alienation that then feeds into the system you just described. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact of the matter is, is if you're playing an instrument, um, you know, alienation is an interesting concept here because if you're playing an instrument, you're producing the thing that has value and you're putting it out there. And especially if it's not recorded, then the consumer is right there and they're, hearing you play it and you're not alienated from the consumer. You're not alienated from the product of your work. And if you're playing with other musicians, you're not alienated from other workers, right? So the, the it's this complete kind of alienation free production. But as soon as you get into the idea of recording the music, well, now you're alienated from the consumer very often um, you might be alienated from the other musicians because if you're just going in the studio by yourself, you might not see or might not be playing at the same time with other musicians. And you're alienated from the final product because you've got a producer and engineers. You've got the label structure that's in place that makes it not your own. Um, one of the things that I talk about in the book as well along these lines in copyright is the very idea that what's really the difference between a popular artist that, who doesn't write their own songs and a session musician? Because if the artist is not writing their own music, which is usually the case, then they're just performing something that somebody else wrote. And they're taking the cues from the producer on how to perform it. Um, the only thing that is really theirs is it goes behind their name. So, right, Britney Spears is Britney Spears, and it's her product that she's got to go out there and sell. But 
aside from that, it's not really her product. Right. I mean, except in as much as, you know, it's not, it's, it's also not her product because she's operating under, even though she's extremely financially successful, is still operating through, you know, the Jive label structure or whatever label, sub-label she was on, versus she's also being exploited. <laughs> but that's real. I'm still thinking through the, the implications of this idea of kind of like alienated or non-alienated performance. Because, I mean, at, at some, you know, I'm thinking of like, okay, so if there were no, the modern copyright system didn't exist, how would that change things, right? If, if musicians, for whatever reason, were not able to alienate their compositions from the, from the, the site of performance, and it would seem that at that point, without that ability to alienate, you wouldn't be able to have an industry where some people are making more money because let's say I wrote an amazing song. I can only play it to so many people and there'd be nothing to stop you from playing it in an entirely different setting, which would decrease my ability, presumably, I mean, maybe not decrease it locally, but the idea that, you know, I couldn't have a, a countrywide hit in the same way because there would be no way to, to replicate it. We absolutely live in a society that was that's formed around these ideas that, you know, copyright is sacred. Um, but I think that there still could be other configurations. So if you look at something like software industry or the gaming industry, you have workers who are creating these products who are work for workers for hire, right? They don't own the video game. Somebody who's making Zelda uh, and they're sitting there and they're programming. They're maybe coming up with the dialogue. They're doing all these different things that are protected by copyright. They never have anything in their contract that says they're the owner of the, co the copyright. They're from the start, just a worker that's a cog in this machine. Right. And, and then, th then you're, and, it, and what you argue is that given that whether or not they're actually they actually do and i think that the the beginnings of labor struggles in i mean I, I don't really know that much about the gaming or programming industry but my sense is that you are starting to have kind of increased push towards unionization in some of those industries and certainly like kind of uh in the tech industry generally like labor pressure is is an important thing but in some ways, you know, normally when we say like they're a cog in the machine, <laughs> that's viewed as a bad thing. And and what's fascinating about your work is, in fact, you see that as almost, if not a better position to be in for musicians to like, but at least a, a less um, obscured one, one that that gets at a more accurate understanding of their actual relationship to the record industry. Right. Well, for me, you can't have class consciousness until. Uh, the workers actually recognize that they're workers and musicians think that they're business owners. But it, the fact is when they, a second they sign a record contract, they're working for another entity, whether that's uh, in the ideological baggage of it or not. Uh, they are in fact workers. They're just n not contractually listed as one. So they don't earn a wage. And until they can, change their mind about the way this actually operates. And there's no way to even get through that. So what we actually see is we see 
that musicians on recording contracts are, are in a really backwards uh, way of production that's pre or early capitalist, to say the least. And until in order to get through that and come up with a more equitable way, then they need to be in, uh, or there needs to be a recognition that they're all in the boat together and they're, they're musicians, they're workers, and the, they all share the same kind of problems. And it all starts from the record label. But, but what's also interesting, I think, though, and that, that's a, that's, and this kind of goes again back to this like fundamental idea of copyright and the creation of intellectual property and then the alienation of that intellectual property, right? Is that if I go to Spotify or I, you know, I don't dial up a music <laughs> the way, I mean, maybe you could, but I don't dial up a music the way I would call an Uber. I'm like, I want to listen to X, Y, X, Y, or Z. And so in some ways, like, the idea, it seems to me, of being that X, Y, or Z, that individualistic conceptualization is kind of built in integrally to the way this stuff is being produced and sold. But at an aggregate level, to a record label, I am just calling up a music and they don't actually care. And so in some ways, from that perspective, they can they can structure a system that that really operates conceptually very differently from the one that structures most people's relationship to music and, and and most musicians relationship to the idea of making music. Absolutely. But there's also a shifting in the way that people even think about music. When I talk to my students, their relationship to music is very different from my own relationship to music. And I'm 38. I'm a millennial uh, but for me, I always think of the band, the album, right? I, I make those direct connections. What I've noticed over um, the past five years, but more importantly, the past three years, is that if I ask students what they're listening to, they really listen to, and these are college students, right? They really listen to playlists more than anything. And they they might recognize an artist's name, um, but they couldn't tell you the artist's album. They couldn't tell you maybe multiple songs by that artist unless it has recently come up on the playlist. And six months, a year from now, they've completely moved on from whatever was on the playlist that they were listening to in this moment onto something else. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's something, it's a fascinating topic. It's something we talk about a lot about the ways in which, you know, because I, I think it's really important to, to thinking, you know, to contextualize the different specific relationships between technology and music industry, political economy that created like certain kinds of relationships. So we've talked a lot about like the album as an ideological artifact that like gets created at a certain period of time, right? Like, if you ask someone in the 40s what their favorite album was, they would also be like, I don't know, I just kind of listened to singles. And sometimes the singer who was singing the singles would matter less than the song. Yeah, and these are constant changes that are, are always going on. And there are other, on that topic, there's other issues that are, are coming up. So one of my favorite uh, pieces is by Theodore Adorno, 
and he talks he says basically the only characteristic of recorded music in, in his time and early on was the brevity of the music because the shellac plate can only hold two and a half minutes of music well we still use that as the length of a song a song is still generally under three minutes long even though they're digital files and they could be hours long we still come back to that two and a half minutes but spotify is adding another dimension to it which is they only count spins that last longer than 30 seconds so the so you want it to be a minute and a half two three choruses a verse you know half a verse chorus verse chorus chorus out right so you could see music getting shorter but also that emphasis on having the chorus the catchy chorus sooner so that people get into it and they get hooked so that they stay around long enough to hit the minimum play but then it doesn't matter as long as you got them around that long you want them to go on to the next song because that's another spin for the label not necessarily another spin for the artist right but if i'm sony music I don't really care if my artists hit the uh, minimum number of spins each, because if I have five artists, let's say uh, you got to have 500,000 spins to get paid. Well, if an artist only gets 400,000 spins and the next artist gets 400,000 spins, neither of those artists are getting paid, but they've created 800,000 spins for Sony. So on the aggregate, it's all coming together. And this is going to just keep shifting the kind of production that goes into music. And the artists are going to continually either change what they're doing to to tap into these patterns or they're going to be left behind. Kind of um, talking about kind of the theoretical constructs of this book. One of the ones I really one of the ones that that you talk through a lot and, and think through a lot is hegemony. Um, and kind of the hegemony of the recording contract. And at one level, just like the leverage, right? It's not that you could go to any record company and have them sign that deal because that's not how it functions. But but also my, my sense from, from the book is that the way you're thinking about hegemony is that it gets, it, it's never just imposed for, fully forcibly from above, that there's also a, a buy-in from the groups and it gives a certain something whether that's you know ideological satisfaction whether that's you know to get really marxist like false consciousness or not but that there's a certain level of buy-in and then that buy-in not just structures people's relationship to the music industry if we're talking about the, the getting signed as a hegemonic concept but also like makes it more difficult to think like out outside of it and you kind of, you know, you have this great part where you, you talk about how given that getting signed is the kind of gold standard more broadly in society, that it almost means that everyone, even if they push back against it, they're accepting it. And that the people who actually do get signed have to go through the hoops necessary, like almost like pre-professionalization or professionalization to get signed so that everyone who's getting signed has to of greater or lesser extent, like already bought into this system. You're kind of alluding to the, the one idea. So I talk about um, the ideology is action, inaction, and reaction. And the, the reaction 
is essentially that even if you recognize the problems with the the with record contracts often what people do is they create independent labels that have maybe better record contracts but it still embodies that hegemonic view there's not an out the react action just reifies the original recording contract right and 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 I guess action would be kind of fully fully buying in, right? So action is you ascribe to the dreams of making it. Um, so you do everything you can to be a part of that system. And, and kind of building on that, the ways in which people ascribe to this system was that you actually connected a number of fairly large, prominent cultural, like industry-mediated cultural venues, basically, and kind of pointed out and kind of analyzed them um, throughout the book as explicitly or implicitly supporting this ideology. So whether that's the Grammys, whether that's the voice, and it it made me realize, like, you know, that these ideologies aren't just like kind of uh, uh, quietly <laughs> chilling out there in the ether that they're being actively pushed by industries and systems that have qu- quite a bit of capital behind it. The voice is one of my favorite aspects of uh, the way this gets perpetuated, this along with all other singing competition shows, but even more so than, say, American Idol. They just started like season 20 or season 21 or something. They do two seasons a year usually. Uh, And the only people that really benefit from it, the only musicians that benefit from the show are the coaches on The Voice. So they get multi-million dollar contracts per season. Um, I think they average around 15 million at this point. Early on, they were down uh, the first couple seasons the the people were getting like six million a season oh, poor babies <laughs> because this is the problem that they get people to come on there because they dream of signing a record contract and the winner gets a record contract and a hundred thousand dollars now the hundred thousand dollars that's good but the record contract's just more exploitation um but when you start breaking down the the economics of it right if Blake Shelton gets paid $15 million for a season. What if he got paid $14 million instead? And you took that million dollars, you could split it $1 million to 10 people and pay 10 contestants $100,000. If you did that for all four judges or four coaches, that would be $4 million or $100,000 for 40 contestants. So anybody that goes on the show, right, could get like a hundred thousand dollar salary. And, and what's fascinating about that that example, right, is like precisely in its unthinkability, right? That I think that's that's maybe the, the, such a clear distillation of the, of the power of this ideology. It's that there's like an innate rightness to the idea that it's a competition that artists, you know should be doing this for the love of what they're doing. And then at some level, like only if they reach a certain pinnacle of success, should they get almost like the gift, the societal gift of 
payment for it, right? Like there's almost like a cognitive dissonance where if everyone went on The Voice and they received a paycheck, it wouldn't, it would be a job. And people's fantasy is not that, you know, the viewers at home don't want to see people doing a job. They want to see people, because they have jobs, everyone has jobs, you know, they want to see people pursuing a dream in like a different social sphere that operates according to different rules. Right. And when, whenever I bring this up to people, ever since I started studying it, I, I bring this point up and people will inevitably say back to me, oh, but they're getting publicity. And the logic of the publicity issue is uh, there's several folds to it. First and foremost, the workers on the show get paid because people will say something like, well, they haven't made it yet. They're interchangeable. Well, the person that's, you know, do camera operating, I forget the exact price, but it's a union job. They get $50,000 a year to, to be a camera operator. Union right? job. I forget the exact number that they get paid, but many people could be camera operators or mic boom operators or something. Uh, that that that's probably more interchangeable as far as skills than being a singer competing on a show. But the the idea that they get publicity is inaccurate on its face because. Uh, there's been several reports that I've read uh, and what I've found in my own interviews when I've talked to people is a lot of people actually skip the first few rounds of The Voice. Uh, the, the Voice's producers actually go out and they try to find people who are, are out there and they're, they're doing good with their careers anyway. So they tap into different managers and say, hey, who do, who do you have that would be good for The Voice? And they say, oh, bring so-and-so. So this person then goes on the show and they might be getting a good following as they tour around the country, but then they have to interrupt that for up to eight months. And they're on the show and they might get a lot of Twitter followers or Instagram followers, um, but they're not, they're barred contractually from selling music, selling their likeness, et cetera, et cetera, while they're on the show. So they can't profit off of their music as long as they're um, contestants. So what ends up happening is they get these big Twitter followers, but people are only watching, following them on Twitter because they're seeing them on the show and they're rooting for them and they're rooting for Team John Legend or whatever. And they don't really care about them as artists. So what some people have demonstrated is after they've gone on the show or not that they've demonstrated, they've claimed that their audiences have gotten smaller since they went on the show because they left the road for a while. It's, it's genuinely crazy. <laughs> and, 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 you know, it kind of also, I feel like points to kind of what you were saying before about, about some of the broader changes in that come from like, you know, datification of the music industry, which is that as long as you have a churn, of commercial kind of commodified product the need in a moment when you can track streams and track plays to do the kind of um the 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 squishier parts of of artist development 
just isn't there as much because you can just do like a plus b plus c equals d as a total number of of of, of product and a total amount of, of, of revenue stream going into the major labels where previously it was like well we got this person they're doing you know bruce springsteen album one they're doing a we think we can get them to d but there's like a a lot of kind of like vibe you know and work in between that first album and born to run yeah and the interesting part of the logic today is it kind of runs opposite to what it used to be where one part that i talk about is there used to be a the bar circuit right you get famous by touring around going to bars going to fraternities getting into bigger and bigger venues, getting noticed by labels, the labels then sign you and help grow you and, 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 and that whole process. Well, that's kind of flipped on its head now with people like Lil Nas X, who Lil Nas X hadn't really even rapped before until he put out Old Town Road. And he had never performed in front of a live audience. So they are simply looking at metrics and going, oh, this is getting big. And then they offer, instead of a $500,000 advance, they offer like a $10 million advance. But the fact of the matter is he didn't even need the record label. He was already huge. Yes, they made him bigger, but the only thing that they were seeing was, ooh, he's getting big and we don't have, we're not earning any money from it. So how do we get him to sign our label so that we can earn money off of his creativity? And and, and Little Lasnik X is, is is an interesting example that that also kind of points to the changing dynamics of, of some of this. Um, and I think in a way that points to maybe not the 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 end of a certain form of you know maybe not the end of alienation by any stretch of the imagination, but a state change, right? Because. I would push back a little bit on saying that Little Nas X had never performed live in front of people because if you think about the internet as his primary venue, he was, my understanding, was like a fairly active uh, kind of like a Twitter personality, especially on like Nicki Minaj forums who had had like things go small scale viral previously. And I mean, I'd argue a little bit that kind of really being online having some things go small scale viral before having something go very viral that gets you a and r attention isn't that this i mean it's a very different venue but isn't that dissimilar from you know touring a bar circuit touring the 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 frat circuit the biggest difference is the way in which it seems like strict musical performance has been kind of decentered and kind of a more amorphous style of value generation where the musical music is part of it, but is by no means the whole thing uh, seems like this, the new model that's really started to emerge. Well, yeah. And I, I don't think that it's really all that new. I mean, if you go back to Elvis or you go back further to the Rat Pack and Frank Sinatra, it, it was never about, their singing abilities, right? Uh, it was this full package. And I think Lil Nas X is a creative genius. I think he is a force that will be around for the next 20, 30 years, 50 years. 
and his ability to gain garner attention by uh, tapping into mm-hmm. performativity. I, I don't know what the the right word would be, but I mean he is a marketing genius. But again, that's kind of the the industry. Music industry has never really been about music. Uh, there is a great one of my favorite documentaries is called Before the Music Dies, and it came out around two thousand five, I believe, maybe two thousand six. And in that documentary, they they talk to a lot of people like Erica Badu, Dave Matthews. They talk to Questlove. They 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 speak with all these people. Um, but one of the the most interesting things they do is they take a 16 year old model and she can't sing and they essentially create a hit tune with her. Right. Because it's really all about appearances. Um, And because of auto tune, they can get the voice to be in the right pitch. They can sustain notes that aren't sustained. They can alter everything and they can make it sound okay. But it's not the sounding okay that's important. It's the full package. Uh, So I think that that's changed very little. The thing that has changed is they can know immediately what is a hit. They can know by your Twitter or Instagram or TikTok presence um, whether or not you can uh, get an audience's attention. And they... All they really care about is attention. To me, that points in in a couple of different directions, right? As kind of thinking about how things could change in the future, maybe for the better. For one, and, and I want to go back to this in a minute. Uh, you, you kind of at the you end the book by by positing like, well, what if people just stopped buying into this getting signed ideology to the kind of one in a million American dream ideology and kind of demanded like a fair shake as a contract worker. That's one. But this is another version where if it's about, you know, Lil Nas X's ability to garner attention, I wonder if clearly the record industry can still, you know, in a 360 contract, still extract profit from all kinds of stuff he does. But I wonder if that kind of fundamental act of enclosure that you sketch out here, right? The idea that you have specific IP that then can be alienated from you and replicated and disseminated and sold. If it's about, if it's less about a specific song or set of songs and more about kind of this overall attention package, does that chip away at any of that kind of of that act of enclosure that still seems so central to like the way the music industry functions. I, 360 deals themselves are acts of enclosure. The, uh, the whole idea that you could sell yourself, uh, sell your image for doing commercials or by going, making appearances on television shows or movies. These are all more aspects of that enclosed set of rights and they always want to try to push those enclosed rights even further so right how does a what is a record con what does a record label have anything to do with 
um, an artist going on a Pepsi commercial, especially if they're not playing the music. What has nothing to do with it? Uh, But the record contracts are trying to make the argument that, well, if it wasn't for the, the money that we put into marketing, then this person wouldn't be known. And that's why they owe us money on these other areas. And when you start thinking about acts like little Nas X, he is a personality. The labels didn't do anything for him. He did it all for himself. Um, They still try to manipulate this ideology and make it seem like they're these um, benevolent entities that are creating people and that they deserve to somehow profit off of it as well. So no hope. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it depends on what your hope is for. Well, David, thank you so much um, for coming on the show. It was really great to have you and talk through all this stuff with you. It's a, it's a really like provocative and fascinating book. uh, That is David Arditi's getting signed record contracts, musicians and power in society. Um, Definitely check it out. Uh, Thank you so much for, for coming on Money for Nothing and talking Sam, with us. Sam, thanks for having me and for saying such kind things about my book. 